You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. This is episode 53, and I'm Brandon. And I'm Allison. And we're here to talk about fermentation, and uh, do you, are you prepared for this episode? Do you have anything new for us? I mean, Um, you know, I do. I made some, I finally got around to making that kefir that I've been telling everyone that I was going to make. So I made it yesterday, just put it in the fridge today. Um, tasted it a few hours ago. Um, turned out pretty good. This is your dairy kefir, your kefir. Yeah, my dairy, my dairy kefir. So, um, it's pretty good. It's a lot, it's not very sour. Um, it's, but it's really thick, almost like yogurt. Um, so I'll, I'll probably eat it like yogurt with spoon with berries on top or something, but I know that you usually drink it. You've never made it before, correct? Yeah, I've never made it before. So this was the first attempt and it worked. It was but it's really thick. So I'm assuming you used whole milk? I did. I used um whole milk. I've my and... I what the only reason why I did whole milk was because um I read or heard on the news that whole milk is much better for you um Wait, and your general this, health. You were drinking something other than whole milk? Yeah, I was drinking skim milk. <laughs> Yeah, well, that, um, that that I think it was NPR, wasn't it? They said mix that uh, the correlation versus causation. I don't know, but it's still that people that generally drink the the whole fat dairy are generally skinnier or less weight. Or what's the, what's yeah, the proper term to say? Um, leaner, maybe Lean, leaner. Okay, there you go. Leaner might be the right word. Um, well, we just we go through. I mean, we drink milk so fast in my house um, that it was getting. We did buy whole milk for a while, but we would go through it so fast and it was just getting so expensive. Um, How much and, more expensive is whole milk there? Well, let's see. It's like $5 a gallon or so. We went, well, and but we buy the organic um, milk. But what's the difference? Like, I mean, the, the it seems like mere pennies for the difference between whole versus others to me. Oh, so like whole milk, um, organic whole milk at the, just the normal, nothing fancy grocery store here is usually five, six, seven dollars. Just, so I'll say six dollars. Um, but if you get fat free milk, um, or skim milk or low, like 2% or something, it's, only, it's maybe three or four dollars. For organic so it's like, a, uh, yeah, it's like two dollars cheaper. So, um, we switched to the cheaper kind, the, with the less fat. Um, but we, so we switched back to organic whole milk. Um, and it's, I mean, we, we like it. It tastes great. We drink a glass every night, but we just go through it so fast. So. Oh yeah. Well, that's, that's funny that you have such a drastic difference in price because I always think of, it's like, well, why would I get anything other than whole milk? Because I'm just paying for water. I mean, not watered down, but I mean, everything's out, like there's nothing in it. Um, that is exactly it's funny that you said that because that's exactly what my dad and um, my grandpa says because they've always had whole milk and they don't understand why people buy skim milk um, and they, their reasoning is it makes sense same same reasoning you have is why would you pay more I think in Indiana it's m- more I don't know how the, I don't remember um, more expensive to get the skim milk than the whole milk something like that it's something really strange but they but they had the same complaint it's water it's just water it doesn't taste like anything whereas the whole milk has so much more flavor and fat and it's delicious oh it, it definitely is and, and i don't grow up i didn't grow up drinking milk because i was when i was i think in kindergarten found out that i was lactose intolerant 
And so I haven't, I never grew up drinking any, I had yogurt sometimes, but not even a whole lot. I don't feel so like, this is more of a later thing in my life when I started fermenting dairy and was able to actually enjoy it. And so like being able to enjoy it in uh, liquid form too, like with some, some kefir or with some pime yogurt that's drinkable and pourable. So for me, like the, the whole concept was definitely very weird to like, I, I was, I didn't grow up with any kind of concept of drink this kind of milk out of this colored carton or anything like that. So for me, like, I was like, why would I get anything else besides whole milk? Like, and plus, I mean, for, for dairy and for cheese and everything else, I mean, or for fermentation wise, it definitely makes a lot more sense to use whole. Yeah. And it's, so my, my kefir is really thick, um, but it's pretty good. I mean, I'm not to, not to like gloat about myself, but it's pretty delicious for the first time. Um, but it was really easy to make. Since you had so much to do with the whole process. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I take all the credit for those microbes. Yeah, I'll take all the credit because they can't really speak for themselves. Well, I guess they speak for themselves in the taste of it, you know, that kind of speaking for themselves. But they're not like vocally being like, we rock, we rock. They are now. Um, So I I guess maybe I'll just be like their their liaison and like speak for them. Um, And they did a pretty good job. So yours is really thick. Where uh, do you... Did did you just you got them dehydrated, correct? I did. Mm-hmm. And you um, rehydrated them, and then this is the first actual batch, or the rehydration is was the same step for you as making it. The rehydration was the same step as making it. So I'll so, be interested to see if yours remains as thick, or if yes, it... yeah, because I'm gonna keep some of it back and not drink it um, or eat it with a spoon. Um, so I'll, I'll get back to you and let you know, cause I'm, I'm interested to see how it turned out because it's, it's pretty thick. Um, and it's not like the, the kind of kefir that you usually associate with, with just being like, um, I don't really, it's not, it's that you can, uh, like it's pourable. It's much more pourable than whatever I made. The kind that you buy at the store or you're saying yours is not pourable whatsoever. Not really, no. Um, it's it's really thick. <laughs> well, it'll be interesting to see how this continues going because I find, I think I've had two or three different strains of, of kefir grains over the years. And the one that I've kept for a few years now is not nearly as thick as what you're talking about. And it's mm-hmm. in whole milk and, and it just, it's, still pourable it's definitely thickens up it's one of the thicker i kind of lump it into like heirloom fermented dairy of sort like heirloom yogurts like they're kind of all similar except that it's a little scoby of of sorts of grains as opposed to backslopping but it's probably the thickest out of all those now the other question is did you get any effervescence in this first run did you get the bubbles you know really small bubbles on the outside of the um jar Um, and I did, so sometimes I don't use, um, a fermentation locker and put anything on top of it, except like a plastic bag, just like a Ziploc bag. Um, cause it keeps stuff from falling in, but it lets all the, um, some of the air go out and it doesn't explode or anything. So it's just like a normal Ziploc bag that you buy at the store and I put it over it and it blew, not blew up in the sense like it, it like blew off the top or anything, but it filled up with air. Um, 
and so I know that it produced gas and stuff and it turned it into kefir. Um, I'd be interested to know if you have mutant kefir grains or if that's just common for people. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to have to do it again and do like a side-by-side trial. So maybe I'll use the kefir grains again and then use a portion of what I like what I keep from this batch and see if there is a difference. And um, I mean, maybe I don't know. Over time, I'm sure it will Over shift time. and change and be a little bit, I, well, especially if you're anything like I am, which sometimes I've been a little abusive to my grains or forgetting about them for extra time. And then everything is, the the way is separated from the solids. And see, that's what I get before it thickens too much. It then starts to, to separate. But I also do ferment mine with a closed lid. Oh. Um, hmm. And I, I, and. Why do you ke- do that? Because I love the bubbles. I, that's what I I love that like it's kefir is the champagne of milk. I mean, it's yeah. you can also if you want more of that, you could do a second fermentation stage, which is also another way of traditionally doing it, because generally it was not done in a closed container to start with. But if you put it into ferment it for 12 to 24 hours and then separate the grains with that fermented half fermented batch or already fermented batch then sealing that and fermenting for another 12 hours up to even 24 and then but sealed at that point then getting more of that effervescence and then as far as i understand in my experience too is that with and you probably have more experience with with beer brewing that the carbonation absorbs better after being chilled is that correct like it holds better as opposed to just being all kind of sitting up at the top Yep, that's right. Okay, so that's what I also find with the same with with dairy kefir. So if I put it in the refrigerator before consuming it, then it it it's even more of that tactile experience that I really enjoy about kefir. Huh. Well, I guess I haven't really had too many effervescent kefirs. Usually, the stuff that we buy is pretty still and um just very. It's it's you know the halfway point between. Um, flowable milk and um, scoopable yogurt. So it's enough. It's pourable. We drink it out of a glass. Um, the store-bought stuff. The store-bought stuff. Yeah. And add like berries or chia seeds or something in it. Um, sometimes it just depends on whatever plain. Um, so that's you, usually how we have it. Um, you got to at least try no. it. Try it with the effervescence because I mean, that's the real plus side of being able to have it at home. There are some uh, companies that do do kefir, the smaller ones that are still doing it traditionally with grains, but like the Lifeway and other well, Lifeways bought out some of the other ones, but they're not using the grains in the traditional sense because they are, as far as I understand, using direct set starter cultures because they don't want something that creates that effervescence that's going to explode the bottles. Uh, and that makes sense. And that's all about, well, I think we talked about it last week and just having a consistent product and fermentation from batched batched batch also yeah and, um, and it's very and i don't even like i are you familiar with nancy's kefir have you ever seen that i think it's a it's a um, west coast brand like a, yeah nancy's is like up in oregon i think it's out of salem oregon but i've had their yogurt i don't know if i had if i've had their kefir okay so they do other things too like i've only seen their kefir and the only reason why i've ever had their kefir is because my wife has got it when it's gone on clearance sale because i don't know if it's because they're using traditional grains and still fermenting the same way or if it's because it's a flavored one like their blueberry one at least 
years ago would expand so much. So she would buy it when it's already starting to be expanded. So that's why it was discounted because otherwise it's not going to last much longer on the shelf. <laughs> so it's, it's continued, like continued to ferment in that carton. And, uh, that's really good because that is just as effervescent as it can get. And that's probably because there's added sugar in it too. That helps. Uh, probably. Um, I've, I've never flavored kefir before consuming it only like in a smoothie. Um, have I added fruits or whatnot? I've never let it sit to ferment longer. I haven't, obviously this is my first time making it, but, um, I think I might add, do like another, I I don't know how I'm going to do it because I, because we usually get not the, we usually get like the strawberry flavored kind just to add a little something, something else to it. Um, because sometimes by itself, it's a little bland. Um, so yeah, I guess I could do a secondary fermentation and try to get it to like loosen up a little bit. So it's not so thick and more drinkable, pourable. I'm just, I'm very fascinated to see if yours thins out a little bit because it it seems like with a lot of the, like the, the home fermented dairy products, oftentimes people want things to be thicker. So, and it, that's generally not the case that they're so thick, but it'll be interesting to see if how yours evolves. If it, I will keep people updated. And did you name it? I didn't. I didn't name it. I'm a terrible person. Um, Sourdough? Did you name it? I never... I'm still thinking about it. I haven't gotten around to it. I'm thinking, though, I'm heading towards... Because I had that whole discussion um, with you about... It's more of like a city because there's lots of different types of bacteria. It's not like one... It's not like your your culture of... um, What is it? bill or um you have one that you that you have labeled and it's like a person's name um mats mats yeah it's it's kind of a person's name yeah yeah i mean it's an s and it's um so i'm leaning more towards like tiny town i'm i think that you had mentioned something about a movie that had that yeah the parrot Um, uh referring to minnesota as uh minnesota or tiny sota tiny soda that's right um so i'm kind of leaning something like that and then the, then that kind of took me to like tiny remember tiny tunes that was on tv like a long time ago when we were kids um oh I like i think the it was called wasn't it Wonder like an Brothers animated thing? yeah something like that um and it has like a whole bunch of like crazy characters on it and stuff and it's kind of weird and funny um it's unpredictable so i was kind of leading towards that tiny tiny town or tiny tunes or something like or tiny maybe tiny town um but i haven't i haven't come up with a good name yet it's not that hard i know i maybe i'm just gonna i'm just gonna call it i'm just gonna call it tiny town that's it that's the name wow there you go it's official it's official no turning back now I'm going to have to quiz you in a few months to make sure that you're still referring to it as that because <laughs> make sure you haven't forgotten. No, what was it called? Um, so I'm going to run into my kitchen as soon as we finish recording and write it on a piece of like duct tape and put it on the side of the container. So I remember. <laughs> yeah, maybe make it a little scarf or something, too, and wrap it around the the edge of the jar. What do, yeah. do you store yours in a jar? Um, no, it's like a big bowl, glass bowl. Um, that has a plastic lid on top. Um, I thought it's one that you of those, said this like, was tiny. That sounds large. 
So it's a little bit of an oxymoron. It's a pretty big culture, but there's lots of really tiny things inside of it. Um, it's like three or four cups of um, starter. And did you choose your vessel for any specific reasons? Um, it was on sale at CVS when I was at the gro- or at the pharmacy. I needed a really big glass container, and so it was that. That's what it was, and. I was using it, the glass container for something else. I can't remember what it was. Um, and when my starter started to get larger in volume, I needed a place to put it. So I put it in there. And that's kind of where it's lived ever since. It's its home. Um, and it fits nicely in the bottom um, drawer of the refrigerator. Um, what that we always, we don't use it that often because we always forget what's in the drawers of the refrigerator. So we don't really use the drawers. Um, Cause we're really bad about like things that get pushed in the back of the fridge don't really get used. And then we end up throwing them away. Um, and same with the drawers. So that's kind of where all of the things we don't use very often live. How do you keep your vegetables crisp? Isn't, aren't those crisping crisper drawers or. Yeah. And they, yeah. They're the crisper drawers, but we don't really, I mean, we pretty much eat vegetables as soon as we get them. So it's not too much of a problem. Um, but I guess there's one drawer that we do use for vegetables. Um, it's the middle, but there's like three drawers that pull out. Um, and so it's the middle one cause it's the largest. So you can, you don't, um, you, we don't fill it all the way up because then stuff at the bottom gets missed. And then, then that's really bad. If you forget about like that zucchini that's down there and then it starts to have a different kind of fermentation that's happening, um, that you don't want to happen where it gets really stringy and um, kind of starts to disintegrate at the bottom and then you have to clean it all out. So we don't really try to fill it up too much. Wow. You seem like you're a pro at, at composting things in your refrigerator. Yeah, we're really good at it. <laughs> but we got a new fridge at, for our new place. So that should also not be a problem anymore because this fridge is one of those like French door fridges with um, on the top. And then it has like the fancy pullout drawer for the freezer. Um, and it's set up in a way that you can see everything and it's not that deep. So things don't get lost in the back. Um, and then the pullout freezer drawer has like shelves on it so you can organize things so that things don't get lost. Cause that's, that's just our problem. We just look and we open the fridge and we're like, Oh, I guess we'll just have this. Cause it's right here in the front versus, um, stuff in the back. We just forget about that stuff. Just need to have a little whiteboard check sheet of what's what you're putting in when you put it in and then check it off once you take it out and you'll be yeah. set because then you don't have to even open the refrigerator. You just see it right there on your front door. We should start doing something like that because we're really bad about just having stuff in the back of even the pantry. There's stuff back there like, you know, we've moved we've moved so often in the past few years that it's um you know, you have to, you can't eat all the food. So you take it with you to the new, to your new place. Um, and I think I found a box of, cause we don't really eat a lot of, um, boxed foods. So this must've been, I mean, this was really old. It expired, whatever it was, um, like two years before, um, it was I still good, it. right? I threw it away. Oh. Um, <laughs> Because I figured, like, we haven't used it now. We're probably never going to eat it. So I'm just going to throw this away. I felt bad throwing it away, but that's just how it is. So that's how it works in our house with our pantry. Um, has nothing to do with fermentation. Um, 
the title of this episode will be Allison's Refrigerator. Allison's Refrigerator. It's got a nice ring to it. Yeah. So at first I was thinking you were like going all American with like the ginormous refrigerator with the French doors, which I uh, think look very nice. Um, but it sounds like this is French doors, but at the same time, sh- shorter than the typical or sh- more shallow, less depth. Then. Yeah, it's kind of one of those uh, counter depth fridges. Um, it sticks out a little more than your counter does, um, but they're um, there's ones not... that stick out farther than that. Yeah, they there's some that are like huge that are I don't I don't know what they're called or I think they're just normal fridges. But um, there's some. So what we have is like a counter depth one. Yeah. Okay. See, I really want one that I would never be able to convince my wife of would be uh, just a commercial. Uh, commercial restaurant fridge kitchen fridge that's i mean i don't want all these shelves and different random stuff different ways i want things that i could like get specific containers for that will fit in and i can adjust things how i want them like i i just sometimes the residential versions or the consumer versions of things just aren't as user well maybe they're more user friendly but i want something that's more utilitarian i want something that doesn't have to necessarily look as nice just be really good even though i like it when it looks really nice but i just don't think that i'm going to get that anytime soon yeah i mean the one that we bought it, the where we're moving to the kitchen's really nice and so and it didn't have a fridge so um we bought a really nice fridge but we bought it at um an outlet store so and it's the place it's it's like sears outlet or something where they take all the fridges that are dinged up through shipments or like something's wrong with them um so there's like a tiny scratch on it, but it was half the price as a normal fridge. So that's wow. kind of how we buy appliances is like they look nice, but you can't and you can't really tell what's wrong with them. Um, like we had a dishwasher and we bought it for like $500 because it didn't have the silverware rack in it. But we're great. You just can just go to like um, Goodwill and buy a was- dishwasher, like the silverware rack and just put it in there. And no one knows. I mean, you don't see it. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't have thought anything wrong of that. I mean, I yeah, I, I'm all for that too, especially when there's like deep discounts on things for small little insignificant things that eventually are going to get dinged up anyway. Potentially, I don't yeah, know if I'd I mean, lose a, a utensil rack or whatnot, but you know, I mean, still, like you said, it's so easy to replace. It yeah, and I mean, it doesn't really matter because after a few years, it gets old and worn anyway. So, and you have to buy a new. If depending on what it is, you have to buy a new one anyway. So, pretty much all of our appliances come from, um, like the Habitat for Humanity Restore, um, where people contractors um, who are flipping houses or doing really big apartment renovations or something like that, they take all the old appliances there. Um, and they're usually really nice. Like we bought a Kenmore Elite cooktop for um, maybe like eight hundred dollars. When those things we looked online and it it, it retails for like two thousand, three thousand dollars, or whatever it was. It was, I mean, it was such an amazing deal that we would have gotten it anyway, even if we didn't need it, just just to keep it, just to be, just because it was so nice. But stuff like that, like, hey, that's great. We got a really great deal on it, and it looks great. So. That's kind of how we do things at our house. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I definitely dig the Habitat Restore stores. They're just they're they're very uh, it's it makes a lot of sense. It's like things are being used. Things that get wasted otherwise can really definitely 
be a win-win for everyone. Yeah. And you can't really tell. I mean, as long as, um, you know, you have, you can't really tell. It's not like anyone's going to go and be like, oh, you bought that at the restore. Oh, I don't know if I can be around you. Um, so it's, I mean, well, I guess we don't really care. We don't have family or friends who care too much about our appliances or judges by our appliances. So that works for us. That's probably a lot easier. I think it'd be kind of tough if you had a bunch of people around you that were always looking at your appliances. <laughs> then they probably shouldn't come to our house. Our house is um, always full of interesting, different projects happening. Um, just construction projects or fermentation projects. So um, it's it's more of you like you come in and you're like, oh, what are the Wellses doing today? So. Yeah, that was that was definitely how it was when I was writing this book. It was uh, more ferments than I think I've ever had going at the same time, just or or started all at the same time and needing and just running out of. I mean, I had three incubators going and still needing somewhere warm near the fireplace. So like our table was just jars or crocks or different things near it. And it was, it was very interesting to see so many projects going on. And I know my wife was going crazy in that sense, because I, if it's a project, it doesn't look like mess to me, but that doesn't quite translate that way for her. But <laughs> it's like, for me, it's like, it's that creative process and it's like foods the same way. I mean, just gotta, gotta get the, all these things out of my head and into reality. And it was, it is though, I have to say a little bit nicer to have more space and not having to like shift jars around just to eat dinner. I mean, it, it didn't have to be that extreme except for the fact that I was trying to do a lot of ferments in the middle of winter and it's been a cold winter here in Wisconsin. So, you know, and, and I heat with wood burning stove. And again, like I said, being out of incubator, so, uh, or out of space. So, you know, it, that's the warmest spot was our dinner tables right near the wood burning stove. So that's, yeah. That's where you they ended take, up. You had to take advantage of that. And I'm sure that there have been times where I've had fermentations happening somewhere in my house and people just think it's really strange or you have to step over them. Um, what do you have fermenting it, on the floor that you step over? Oh, my big carboys for like when I'm brewing oh, beer. Oh, okay. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Like really big, like really big fermentations. Not like little tiny mason jars like lined around the perimeter of the room. Um, no, they're usually like uh, big glass carboys or something. So um, you don't have to, we try to, I try to like move them to the side so that they're not in the way. Um, but, you know, we always have lived in a small house in a small space. So it's kind of inevitable that, you know, it might be in front of the dishwasher or the dryer or something. So you have to move it or scooch it to the side or something just to get to wherever you're going. I like to imagine that that's how fermentation has happened traditionally throughout history, unless it's being fermented outside. I mean, it's in someone's little hut or something Yeah, and, and they're, they're fermenting and they've got to move everything around and do their thing. But I, I like small spaces. That's the one thing that is nice about abundance of space though, too, is having somewhere to put all that stuff because it, then it can look all nice and pretty, but there's something organically beautiful about all of the scattered ferments being different places too. Yeah. I, I can see it both ways. Yeah. It's kind of a cluttered, a neat mess. Um, it's kind of fun having, I don't really like a lot of clutter on my uh, countertops and stuff, but it is kind of neat when you have lots of fermentations going in different places. Um, kind of, I, I like the way that looks. Um, that's because I put a lot of hard work into all of all of those ferments that are going. So, 
The only thing I find when I have too many going in different locations, especially if they're new locations and not a tr like spread around in normal locations, checking on them in any upkeep that may or may not be necessary is something that I have to be a little bit more on top of. Because if they're all kind of in generally the same spots where I'm used to seeing them, then I see them and it spurs the idea of like, oh, let's see where they're at if they need to be checked. But when they're all over the place and I'm like, okay, where, where did I put this one last and whatnot? Not <laughs> like that it's I was in the closet. Yeah. I mean, it's like, not that I was like doing it like so crazy, uh, unorganized, but at the same time, um, if they're in a different spot, it doesn't, I don't have that normal routine. That's true. I can see how things can get lost or you forget where you place certain things or, you know, you don't check on ferments every day, um, depending on how long you're fermenting them. So. That's sometimes the thing with ones that ferment for longer, even if I've put them in like a cupboard or something and they're fermenting for for months and I don't really need to check on them. That's sometimes when I can totally forget about something if I don't take notes. That's I've never been really a note taker or well, I, I'm a reminder kind of person on my phone. Like I have reminders that come up and I'm still kind of sloppy about that sometimes, like the the way that I'm reminded about stuff. And so I would say the number one thing I got for fermentation out of writing this fermentation cookbook was, was getting more structured and enforced structuring of the projects. Because if I don't need to expand and be making more at the same time, I don't need to be on like a commercial schedule and, and thinking about things in a very structured sense, because fermentation kind of has that ability to just kind of happen and, and do its thing. And things are going to taste good throughout the process. And even if some vegetables go a little bit over, I can still cook with them. But when I need them for something specific for a photo or otherwise, or for a specific recipe, I kind of need to be more structured and, oh, wow, it's so much different to actually take notes on things that I'm uh, uh, cooking or fermenting on a regular, consistent basis. Like, I'll do it sporadically. I'll like I'll try it for a little while and then not. But it's nice to have to be able to actually have more structure in in notes and be able to refer back to things. That's that's what I like about fermentation is I like keeping all those notes. Um, but I'm the type of person, background. yeah, I'm just the type of person that likes to keep track of all that stuff because if I do run into a problem, then I can look back at my notes and figure it out. So the next time it, it doesn't happen or, um, if it keeps happening, then I have notes and I can look back and think about it and figure out what happened. So I do kind of like that. I, and I do do that pretty well. I mean, at home it's different than, you know, um, working at a job or something like that, where you have to take lots of notes and, um, write down lots of numbers, but uh, cause at home, I don't do it as well as I would at a job, but See, I still do it. And that's kind of where I'm at. Like you're probably more trained in or, or practiced in that methodology to begin with, with education and with work. And then on my side, it's like, I don't do it as much, but like, I still kind of do it. But like when there's structure, like I consider writing a book kind of work in very much the same kind of way. So it's, it, you know, it's like it provides that structure. So I don't know if that provides anything for everyone else doing ferments, if they're feeling all crazy and everything's going all over the place, but like a little bit of stru force structure, figure out a way to force it. I think force that structure. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, but like what, I mean, most humans don't change unless it's like pain kind of motivates that a lot of times. Like it's, yeah, it's hard to get out of those like comfort zones. I heard it takes like three weeks to make any sort of like real, like if you don't floss and you do it for three weeks, then it's a habit. Um, something like that. No, I tried. No, I should, probably should. Um, my dentist is listening. I do it occasionally. Um, yeah. See, but that's something that like that, that is one of the habits 
that I have been on for years, like flossing and kind of going a little bit off tangent here, but like it, it is, it's just one of those things where it's like I've flossed for years and like, it just, it just feels wrong if I don't do it. Um, you know, it's, but that's because like 15 years of doing the same thing every day just kind of creates that, that habit. So I think the, I'd say it's just, it's more challenging for some things that aren't an everyday kind of thing. Like I would like to get better at my yogurt fermentation. Like that's why I generally will ferment it about every five days because making sure that I have enough milk to do all the different dairy ferments that I have. And then making sure that I, at the same time, um, that I have the milk that I, that I am doing it on the the date when it needs to be like, sometimes I get kind of close and I'm like, Oh, I need to ferment this right now or backslop it right now. Or otherwise I'm going to end up losing this culture. Um, so for myself, like that's probably one of my weaknesses is like, I just need to get really structured, but since it's not a daily ritual, like kefir, like that's something when I do that daily, it's a lot easier to to keep up on that and not forget about it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can see how that, I mean, if I don't, if I, if I'm not making something like on an industrial schedule, like not like what you would assume is I'm making lots of beer all the time. But if I don't do it on like a, a frequent schedule, like I'll make beer. If I don't plan on doing it like once a month or something, then I'll go like months without doing it um, because I just haven't kept up with it and stuff or I forget about it or, you know, you get busy. But if you ha- it's in your routine and you're like, hey, it is like the first Saturday I always brew beer on Saturday on the first Saturday. So I'm going to do it now. So then I have beer or, you know, that's just an example, but same thing with sourdough. If you kind of like get into a routine of it, then it makes it a lot easier and it, you kind of can fit it into your schedule. So it doesn't really, it doesn't, it doesn't take up any like real time, I guess. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and habits just generally kind of have that sense. It's like once it's a habit, it doesn't really take, time. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not difficult. It's, it's more the work of setting up the habits, which is kind of weird because I kind of always, it's like, well, I mean, certain things I'll just let ebb and flow as they do, because if I'm not doing it, I must not be that interested in it. And fermentation over the, the many, like what, eight years or so that I've been fermenting since ever since like making yogurt at home, you know, it's kind of ebbed and flow at certain points in my life. And I haven't done it as much, not because I didn't care about it as much, but just because I get busy or I get distracted with other things. But if it was a habit, it'd be a lot easier. And I, I think the reason why I think about this kind of stuff a lot is because I think a lot of people would like to ferment more would well, or do all kinds of different hobbies or interests or different things or cook more or different things like that. But it's much easier to watch the cooking show on television or listen to a fermentation podcast than it is to get into the habit of making these things, even if it is fun, even if it's, uh, it tastes amazing, even if people are doing it for health reasons, sometimes it's really difficult to get into the habit of doing it. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, sometimes, um, you know, you would do a hobby, like fermentation is a hobby, um, for me outside of like science and, um, work and everything like that. It's a hobby, but, um, I think that you can get to a point where it becomes more of a job and you don't really enjoy it as much because then, so you kind of have to have like the right balance of hobby job, like, um, the fermented man, like he's making a lot of his ferments, um, or, and, but he also buys them too. But I think that would eventually, I don't, I don't know though, would it become more of like, like a job? Like you felt as if it, it kind of would suck all the fun out of it because that's kind of how you are living your life. Um, 
I don't think so. Like I think, and I think it would probably be different for every person. And it's a good thing to, to, to ask. I mean, I think that anything that, I mean, that's generally one of those things when someone starts something as a hobby and then turns it into more work, be it a financial income or just work as in something I'm going to make sure I do regularly, whether I'm in the mood to do it or not. I mean, that's kind of how anything kind of becomes eventually. It's not quite as exciting, but I have to say that, you know, I was doing a lot of ferments uh, again, like I was saying way more than I was. Uh, it, it was, it was a very condensed period of time of making a lot of fermentation. And in that time period, you know, I have to make decisions about like, okay, I'm going to stay up later than I would like to. And then to, in order to get this done, whereas, you know, I'd probably choose getting a full night's sleep generally on a regular basis, than making sure that I have sauerkraut in a few months, you know, uh, it's so that the choices are more forced, but I was so thankful to have such an abundance of fermented foods to choose from on a much more exaggerated sense than I would even need on a regular basis. But it's like the, the benefits outweigh the difficulty or the, the, the challenge. And the, the thing is, is again, I go back to that force thing. It's like the only thing about building that habit though, is about, you know, actually making the decision that no, no matter what, I'm going to get this done. And I think that's the hard thing with anything, whether someone's trying to lose weight or, or just trying to cook more or ferment more. It's like they gotta they they gotta figure out what's going to make it so that like no matter what, even if I'm exhausted, even if I had a horrible day, I'm still going to ferment it's, today. Yeah, and it's still enjoyable. Yeah, so it's just finding the right kind of balance of, because um, I I I just know that um, depending on what I'm doing, sometimes or um, I usually just do a small amount so that it's still fun for me. But I can see how if you're continue like consistently doing um the same thing over and over again that's that is time consuming to do ferments aren't really time consuming um they take a long time but the hands-on the amount of hands-on time it takes is minimal compared to like the amount of time frame that it takes to ferment food um but i can see how if you're doing a lot of fermentations and you have a lot of those things to keep up with um and to continuously making them all the time um, because that's how you are sustaining your life and living your life and stuff. I can see how that can become more of a chore than a hobby and, um, people and, might get disinterested in it. it. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I think the chore is a, a very decent word. I mean, gardening has that same kind of aspect of chore related activities in order to get something that's so um, amazing and abundant. I mean, it's not going to be amazing and abundance uh, food if it's, there aren't certain chores taken care of at certain points. And like right now it's like, Oh, it's getting to be about the time. It doesn't feel like it at all, but I need to start planting some seedlings soon and at least plan out the entire garden that we're revamping and making a lot bigger and going to be focusing more on what fermented vegetables are we going to be putting into it? We've got a lot of chores to do at this point, which I kind of am mixed. It's like, yeah, it's exciting to think about gardening but it, I always have to here in Wisconsin, I always have to think about it so much earlier than I'm really excited about it because it's like, I kind of want spring to kind of feel like it's coming before I start planting, but I need to start planting before that. If I'm going to plant the seeds myself and, and start seedlings indoors. So there, there are definitely chores to it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with chores. And I think that we might be more biased towards like the, like the, the heady aspects of different things. Like I don't find anything about doing any kind of reading uh, be it textbooks or more entertaining stuff about fermentation. Like I don't ever find that to be boring whatsoever and it doesn't get old. It doesn't become a chore, but like the actual hands on thing, the, the, the labor, I guess, um, is something that does feel like a, 
laborious at times. It does feel like a chore. And so I think there are other people and possibly other people that are listening to this podcast as well that, that go on the lean on the other side of, it feels more like meditation. It's more like a, a relief out of their day. It's more out of like, it's, it never feels like a chore because working in the kitchen or, or having hands massaging vegetables or, or just being intrinsically a part of a person's food is, is rewarding in a different way that maybe it could never be for you or I, or, or, or possibly could. And I just, I've never had it. I mean, it's kind of like gardening. I mean, some people love to be out in the garden and weeding and doing anything garden related. I find a lot of those things chores, but I value it enough that it's worth the chores. Right. Right. Um, so I guess, I mean, it just depends on the person, but like some things for me, like I love brewing beer. I think it is so much fun. I love it. I love having my friends come over and help and my husband help and everything, but I just can't imagine doing it. I guess that's what brought this conversation up because my first example was brewing beer, um, and being on a schedule of brewing beer. Um, if I were to do it, not every day, that would be a lot of work. See, there you go. That would be a lot of work. Um, because it's again, not necessarily the hands-on time that you were doing. It's just like a lot of waiting and, um, it's kind of takes the whole day to make a good brew. Um, and there's a lot of cleaning and granted, I like doing that because I know the end result will be a really good beer, but, um, to do that every day, I don't know if I could, if I could. So there, you know, that there's my testimony of never wanting to be a brewmaster, but, um, I love doing it at home. I think it's a lot of fun. If I do it like every other month, I think that's more than enough beer that we should be drinking. Um, and it's fun. It doesn't take the fun out of it because it's not all the time. I think that, well, you kind of hit on two things that I, I think of. It's like the the part about, for me, that's almost sometimes a downside of, I feel like I could get into more of a routine if I could consume more of these things. Um, and in the sense of like you with the beer making, I mean, you're not going to be doing it all the, all the time because you're going to have too much, uh, too much abundance. It's kind of like I've roasted coffee at home off and on throughout the years. And at at one time when I was really intensely into coffee, I was ordering all kinds of green coffee to roast at home. But then, I mean, it's like, I've got all this coffee that I'm both roasting and in green form that I'm not necessarily able to, to use it all up in the time period that I would that I could consume it or even my friends or whatnot could consume it. Um, so there, there is that, like sometimes I like, I like the romantic side of artisanal produce production of, of like the, not the everyday nitty gritty, like sacrifice of doing continually the same things. Even if someone loves it, it, it does, it has to become work at some point. Like I like the romantic side of that, of like, being able to learn so much from just the experiential aspect of doing something over and over and over again, that mastery of sorts. And that's something that's either takes a lot longer on the home scale or really isn't attainable in the same sense. And, and, but then there's the plus sides of being a home fermenter versus uh, a commercial fermenter in the sense of, I'm not needing to make money on this and I can, I can make these things for myself, for my friends, for family. And then, that's, that's all. So I, I'm not going to be making as much, uh, as I would, uh, as, as, as many ferments as I would, if I was doing it commercially, but I get to learn things in a different sense because I'm not based on any kind of economy of, of anything. I don't have the benefits of economy of scale, but I also don't have to worry about paying the rent on a fermentation facility. But the other thing that, like you said, that I think is kind of almost the solution to a lot of, I would think 
to being able to do these kind of things and making it not be so chore-like or building the habits in the beginning is doing it with other people. I mean, that's like a totally good way, I think, to, 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 if a person wants to ferment or cook or do more things, it's like, I used to cook way more when I was in college because I'd have friends over or whatnot and, and we'd cook meals together. Um, you know, like make pizza together or something simple enough to do as a group, but it's something that, you know, otherwise wouldn't have definitely been doing in college. That's true. I mean, if that's a, that's an excellent example because I would, if I had more people fermenting with me, sometimes I'm sure I would do it a lot more than, I mean, I think we do it a lot anyway, but I would probably do it a lot more often or go to other people's houses and do it. Cause it's very social to me because again, it's not a lot of like physical hands on time. It's there's some periods of time where there's waiting and you're waiting for stuff to happen, um, to move on to the next step. Um, so it's kind of a social, I guess, aspect of that. Um, and uh, cooking, I mean, that's a good example of, I, I, when it's just me, I don't really cook at all. Um, cause it's just me. Whereas if I have like my husband or like friends coming over or something, I cook way more and it's more of like, I want them to help me. So I guess I can see it both ways. I wonder if there'd be a way we could make a virtual kind of set up for something. Like I'm kind of thinking like Kim Jong style of like a community getting together and for, or at least f- family and friends getting together and making kimchi and uh, doing that in the fall. I wonder if we could do like some kind of virtual fermentation fest because I know there's oh, festivals that's... popping up different places, but I wonder if there's a way that we could like get enough people technologically savvy enough to be able to like set up like, web... I don't know if webcams would be the, the thing to do. Like a, like we could do like a Google Google Hangouts of sorts if if people in different areas and get groups of local people together and then have everyone together and we're all chopping up vegetables or fermenting whatever that takes a long time or making beer or something and and get everyone together like so it's like not only a local communal event but also a, like a, a national or or think big global global event you know like get that everyone would be doing something really cool hmm that's a really that's a really good idea. So we will have to work on something like that. I think it's got to be possible. I think it'd be exciting. I think it'd be fun. I think, and I think that that's sometimes the issue uh, is that there's not always that many people that are fermenting. I mean, there's plenty of people like here in Madison, there's a lot of people that are interested in fermentation or that are fermenting, but there's certain other areas where it's not necessarily as big, which is where that's where Tara will come in with her uh, fermentation on wheels. Listen to a few episodes back the interview with her. I mean, that, that definitely helps like, spreading word around different places. I mean, fermentation is fun and and it is a social, social thing that like for so many years, I just did it myself. Like I was like, I don't know anyone else that's fermenting and it's fine. I just, I just like enjoying it and I share it with people sometimes, but I never really got people too excited about it. Um, but then that's where it's like, gotta start firm up. Gotta, gotta share this with other people that, because it is, it's fun. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, for a lot of different, I, I love it for a lot of different reasons. Um, but I, but I, I think secretly I really like it because of, the, um, the note keeping stuff. I think that that is kind of the, cause I'm, I like being organized and I like, but I also like knowing the answers and how things work. Um, and so it's always been kind of like, how does this work? That's so strange. Like you can't see this, but it's changing. Um, in a, you know, when, when you're little, you don't really understand, um, like chemistry or biology or microbiology um, because you're too young and you haven't learned it yet. But stuff like that, it's just, I I really like it for that side of it too. 
But a lot of people, I know of a lot of people in San Diego that are really interested in it. And there's a lot of clubs and stuff here too that do, that do get together um, and do fermentation swaps or they'll, they'll make sauerkraut together. um, Things like that. Yeah. We just got to make it bigger now. Got to, got to spread it around the globe all at the same time. Yeah. By the way, how was um, your class this past Wednesday? It was good. It was like for myself, I just had the follow up on the vegetables. People, everyone's curtido is bubbling and that's good. And people at different stages in that process because having different temperatures in their, in their homes. And it, it's, it's good to have that little bit of follow up. Everyone seems pretty confident and is going along just fine with that. And then I got to sit in and listen to a sourdough workshop. And uh, so that was. Did that. you learn anything? Was there I, anything that stuck out that was like, whoa, I had no idea. I did. I I learned a few things. The one thing that really stuck out that wasn't as much sourdough specific, but very much so just wheat in in general was the aging process of, of like freshly grinding flour is going to act differently in bread baking than pre-ground store-bought flour that's been actively aged. Um, Is that because of like the enzymes in the flour? Man, or, now I'm feeling kind of. I should I... have taken notes. I uh, I actually don't. I I remember that that was the case, and I I kind of like put a mental note of remember this, and that's kind of how I generally would go. Is like, well, I like I need to I, look. I need to look into it more, or or re ask uh, Trevor who did the workshop and yeah. and uh, and ask more specifically about that. But I do. That was the one key thing I remembered, and I apologize for not remembering. I, what is? I forget okay. what it is. Like the 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 statistic of people remember like one tenth of what is shared in a presentation or something like that. I, I don't remember. So that was the one tenth of things that I recalled. And I think it's important. And I, I will think about it the next time. And then I'll be like, because the way my mind works is like, Oh, why is that? I remember it's the case, but why is that? And then I'll look it up. Oh, well, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I was just, when you said, when you said that different ages of, or how long you've had flour makes a difference on your, on, um, your your uh bread there you go i couldn't think of the word bread um i didn't i i never really thought of it and then i was just sitting here thinking like well what could make it so different um with time and i just thought it just i think it's gluten development would that be oh okay i Um, think the uh the gluten is like other stages in the sourdough process or or just working with flour in general i mean there's different stages where the gluten is relaxing or different things like that. And the aging Hmm. process, I think develops the gluten. And so therefore makes a more leavened uh, bread. Huh? Okay. That's interesting. Let me, if you talk to Trevor, um, I want to know the answer because that's really interesting. I didn't really think about that either because do you freshly grind your own? No, no, I buy my flour at the store. Um, uh, it would be cool if I could grind my own flour. I think that would be something really fun to do. Um, but I'm not at that point yet in my life where I can do that. So um, I buy it at the store. Um, but I have noticed like when I do make bread, um, whether it's sourdough bread or just like whole wheat bread or something like that, that if I I do see a difference in the um, rise of the bread um, and maybe has something to do with not necessarily – the yeast, um, the instant yeast or the sourdough yeast or whatever it is, but more of the flour itself. And I've never thought about that. 
There you go. Now Dude. you have one more thing that you can uh, blame as a potential excuse for why your bread didn't turn out the way you want it to. I will totally blame it on the flour. Although I, <laughs> I'm not going to blame it on my little my the microbes in it. They're no, no, don't blame it on Tiny. Yeah, I'm not going to blame it on Tiny or his little buddies. So wait, so it's well, not only a he, but he has little buddies. Like, who's the he? I thought your whole aspect was that it was a, like a amalgamation of many individuals. It's the entity itself as a whole is a he. I don't know why it's he. It just came out that way. Um, That's interesting because like in English, it's oftentimes like ships or, or land or otherwise are referred to as she. So in your mind, you think of it as he. Yeah, I don't know where I guess... I don't know where that came from. It just came out. I don't know. Well, it's, it's, it's set in stone now. It's a he. It's a he. Named Tiny or Tiny. Oh, I don't even remember what you said, but well, Tiny's the short thing that I'll call it. And, yeah. and, and he has buddies. He has buddies. He has, well, when you like split them off, then those are his buddies. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. I didn't explain that part, but that's because I also just came up with that because I needed an explanation for his buddies. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense because yeah, he's, he's just prolific and spreading his buddies everywhere yeah and uh yeast bud so his buddies there you go those poor bacteria are just kind of out on their own one question about sourdough starter does it absolutely require like does it need oxygen i mean can it be kept in an anaerobic environment i know in the refrigerator you can keep it at that stage but can like if a person was going to keep it out on the countertop what would be the reason? Why does it need to have a lid ajar or besides just pressure buildup? Um, well, yeast can grow um, in the presence of oxygen, too. So that's why you can have your sourdough on the counter in an open container because yeast kind of they, they they swing both ways. They kind of go both ways. Yeah. But then um, the question is, since they can go both ways, and it, so is is the main question is it the lactic acid bacteria that are also in most people's culture? Is I'm assuming that that's also anaerobic. Yeah, I see now. You, I don't really. I have not found like anything the, specific. Yeah, that you're stumping the fermentation scientist here because I've never really found any sort of hard evidence. Um, Because it's something I've always wondered, too, because they still grow in the presence of oxygen, even though they are considered anaerobic bacteria. Um, So I'm wondering, I and I may have learned this a long time ago in school, um, but I think that it's some of it is like uh, micro oxygen that's present, not necessarily that's inside the dough that you can't get oxygen in there and that helps them grow and stuff. But they do also... um, they do better in an anaerobic environment, but um, when there is oxygen, they still can grow and thrive. It's just they kind of go both ways, too. Well, I have not been doing an experiment as in taking notes or or setting up any control, but I have been just kind of loosely experimenting with a sourdough starter and just keeping it on the counter in a closed container and feeding it regularly. Although it kind of, again, not a controlled experiment whatsoever, kind of started to go the way that I am with sourdough some starter sometimes where it just, I forget about it for a few extra days or whatnot. I forgot about it for about a week. And if on the countertop, 
um, like in the refrigerator, I left sourdough starters for a long time and they've gotten that gray thing that you talked about, like the gray mm-hmm. water on top. Yeah. But at, it really depends as to if it's left on the counter for too long without being fed, the chance of mold is a lot, seems to be a lot higher. Now a week, I can't really remember because again, I haven't taken notes when I've been forgetful and not fed my sourdough starter before, but the couple times that I've gotten mold on a sourdough starter are from when it's been left out unfed, not when it's in the refrigerator unfed. And so covered, it started to get that white film of yeast as far as I understand, like the calm like thing that comes on top of uh kefir sometimes. Yeah. Like that's kind of had that. Is that, is that calm too? Like K K eight H M. Is that a proper term? I can't um, remember. Yeah. You can call it that. Do you know by what what am I referring to? Do you know, or, uh, what it, or what it would be called? Or I think that that's what it's called. Um, but it's just isn't it just like yeast separating? Yeah, as far as I knew, it's Something not. It's like, like it's a process of the yeast as opposed to, um, and, and it can kind of look like a white mold, but it doesn't change. It just stays kind of like a little bit wrinkly, whitish dusting on the not dusting but like it's on top so it's if you if you like shake the container not like vigorously shake it but just kind of move it back and forth does does it easily move on the top or not yeah as far it as does? i as far as i that i'm trying to is... think in my head no um, not like it's, it's it's still connected to it if that's what you mean well if it's what i think it is um it's it's not a bad thing um i think it's i forget Oh, I forget what it is called, but it, that word is a familiar term used for it, but there's another word for it and I can't think of it. Um, and I'm really sorry. My husband just walked in with my dog and he's giving me a very pouty face. The dog or your husband? Both of them have a very pouty face. (laughs) Well, we can, uh, we can, we can wrap up in, in just a few minutes and follow up though. You you got to follow up with it because it's the same kind of stuff that is on the top of of sauerkraut sometimes or different stuff. But like it's it's a it was a very since it was sealed, it was a very clean film on top. And again, it's not it's not mold. It's not anything to be concerned of. So I'm just wondering why don't I just keep my sourdough starter closed? Well, I, I'm the stuff that I think you're talking about. It's sorry, I was when I I was trying to explain it, and then my husband walked in. Um, he. Or not he. The stuff it's it's um yeast protein that they make and um it floats to the top and I forget the name of I forget what it is called, but it's not yeast, it's um yeast protein. So then what I'm on still on the hunt for is for one, is that yeast protein going to affect my sourdough bread at all? And it, also what oh, do you know? It shouldn't. Um you can just mix it in. And that's what I've done. And it smells still nice. It still smells good. And what are the downsides of leaving it in a sealed container? I mean, I'm sure it's altering the colony somewhat. It's got to be slightly different environment. So it's got to be doing something. But is it over a long period of time going to be a downside? Otherwise, it seems like a plus to me because I'd rather get that on top than forget and end up with mold on top and have to start over. Yeah. Um. I don't think that there is a downside. I don't think that. So why does everyone do it in an open vessel? I think Be- besides the pressure buildup potential. I think it's because of the pressure buildup. See, and I just use, like, this is one of those. Uh, not... And you just burp it or something. Like you feed it, you close the container. And then once you see it start to 
bubble, like your lid, do you just release all of that um, CO2? Well, see, that's the thing is it's not like an air airtight. Like it's not like, um, I mean, I guess it's relatively airtight, but it's, yeah, I, I would burp it if I need to. Otherwise, I just like check on it and open open it up or what so it's not even like an oxygen free environment but it just keeps the oxygen at a much lower level because it's one of those glass containers that have a plastic kind of lid to them to put it in the refrigerator i cannot think of what kind of terminology i would use for that those pyrex type things yeah yeah so it's just in one of those so it's not like it is airtight ish but it would still it would it's not like a mason jar it's not gonna pop or explode or anything like the lid would just come off and with a little bit of pressure build up. But so it's not even a hundred percent airtight and it's not like I'm not opening it regularly enough to feed it anyway. But when I forget to feed it, that's when I get the benefit of, because you know, it's, it's gone through its big bubbly phase and it's kind of just in a stasis of sorts, trying like starving, trying to survive on whatever resources it has left. And then it just forms that little calm yeast or, or the white stuff on top, the film, but I don't get mold. So I don't know. I, I'm interested to see, I'll try to continue it, but I'm also going to continue to try and look into it just to see. It's like, well, is there any benefit to doing it? Same with yogurt. I know some people leave their, or leave their yogurt ajar or like you're talking about your kefir and I keep them sealed and I haven't had any issues. And I'm just wondering what are the, what's the difference between my fermented dairy and the person's fermented dairy that's doing it Otherwise, I, I with things like Vili that I have a geo uh, geo mold, on, mold that grows on top, a little fuzz that grows on top. I mean, with the mold, I need oxygen, so I don't close that one. I ferment that one a little bowl with a plate on top, so like that one. But the other ones seem they they can swing both ways too. Hmm. That's a really interesting. I'll have to look into. I'll look into it too. I I would like to know this answer and kind of settle it up. Yeah, I want to know when, like, because sometimes it's easier to have things closed, especially when there's a lot of things fermenting near each other. Not that I'm really that concerned about any kind of drift of colonies between, but at the same time, it's like, it's just nice to be able to put two yogurts right beside, like, well, sometimes four or five different yogurts or dairy, fermented dairy right next to each other without having to worry about any kind of drift or cross-contamination. Sure. Yeah. Or spillage. That's the other thing that's nice about being able to close a container that doesn't need to be open. Because I don't have to worry about tipping it over. Not that I'm really t- doing that often, but those are the things that, that keep me up at night is wanting to know why. Why is it closed? But on that note, do you have anything else? No, but I think that we should talk about or mention um, the changes that are happening this week. Oh, so yeah. The first, the first change is you guys are probably not listening to this until Tuesday. Because, because we're not released. Go ahead. You can you can make the announcement. Oh, no, I don't want to make the announcement, but we're just going to do it on, on Tuesdays. Kind of like you've kind of seen is all I was going to say is that it's kind of been that way a little bit lately. And so instead of being inconsistent and maybe coming out on Monday morning, maybe coming out on Monday evening, maybe coming out on Tuesday, never really know. I know it's kind of fun to keep you on your feet, but at the same time, uh, instead, we're just moving it and shifting it to Tuesday. We're still pre-recording, so it's but but this way it makes sure that we're done and ready to go for for Tuesday. But then but then the other one that you guys that everyone should listen to or be excited about is Friday we're going to really release our first episode of What the Ferment. Yeah, that's our new show. It's much shorter. It's abbreviated, not an abbreviated version of Firm Up by any means, but it's it's just a very 5 to 10 minute show, easily digestible pre-fermented for you already with information on fermentation 
and we start the first episode with what is fermentation. So probably not something that you are going to learn that much about if you've listened to all the episodes of Firm Up. But at the same time, it's a great episode to send other people to. And we're going to keep getting in deeper concepts. That, again, like we mentioned before, is going to be kind, kind of our topical thing of we're going to talk very specific about one thing without our ums and ahs and all over the ramblings, uh, tangents or whatnots that this podcast allows for. Um, and so it's going to be nice, neat, clean. Don't stop listening to Firm Up, though. This is just a great thing to send other people to and listen to yourself that doesn't really take much more time in a person's day. So listen to What the Ferment. That's going to be out on Friday. You'll find that announcement on our website. And you could, you'll also, on Friday, be able to just go to firmup.com slash WTF, and you'll be able to get to that. But until then, you can always send your questions or feedback or any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear in What the Ferment or things you'd like us to talk about other than Allison's refrigerator. You can send those to podcast at firmup.com or you can find us on Twitter at firmup, Facebook at firmup or Google plus at plus firmup or Pinterest at firmup or anywhere else that you would find us. You find us at firmup and until next time firm up.